Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Mario Vinasco. Mario is originally from Colombia, and he went to the US to do a Master of Science Management, Science and Engineering at Stanford University. And he stayed working in Silicon Valley ever since. He's worked in companies like Intuit, Google, Hewlett Packard, Semantic, and then Facebook and Uber, where he is today. Mario has spent most of his career working in marketing analytics. And at the moment, he's a marketing manager for analytics and data science at Uber. In this episode, he tells us about how he got started in marketing analytics and how he went into the field without knowing anything about it. He tells us about some of the tensions between the creatives and the quants in marketing. Also, how the headaches of technologies have changed over time. He tells us why running experiments is the gold standard in terms of finding out what works. He discusses with us his work at Google, at Facebook, and at Uber. tells us a bit about what it's like working in those companies and the type of work that he was doing. It's a really great episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Mario Vinasco. How are you doing? We're very good, Felipe. Thank you very much for the invitation. Ah, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for coming to Australia, for coming to speak at, at the conference, and for making time to do this interview. Sure. I'm very excited to be speaking with you, and uh, we just had some technical problems, so thank you very much for bearing with us. <laughs> sure, sure. No worries. As I said before, the recording that did not go through, happy to be in Australia, first time ever in Melbourne. A little colder than expected for this time of the year, I guess, or I'm not used to it, but it's a beautiful city, very nice. Happy to be here presenting today later, Marketing Analytics. I know, we're so excited to have you um, at the conference and in the podcast. And I wanted to ask you if you could give us a, a little bit about your background. Background, yes. I've been in business for a while. I probably look a little younger than I am, but I've been in business uh, for a while. I grew up, I live in California. I live in the San Francisco, Silicon Valley. Currently work for Uber Technologies, doing marketing analytics, but I grew up in Colombia, in South America. Grew up in a very small village in the Andes, surrounded by coffee growers. My family were not in the business of coffee, but grew up surrounded literally, almost literally by plants, coffee plants. Amazing. Very beautiful uh, countryside. I studied electrical engineering in Colombia, worked there for a little while and then uh, went to California to Stanford University for a master's degree in a technical field and then after that I was hired for a company in the US and been there ever since. Amazing. And how did you get into the data space? What was it that, that brought you into the analytics? Data space, I think I always been there. 
I always love numbers. Uh, one of the things that I think is wrong in education is I think we are being taught math mm -hmm. wrong. Uh -huh. We started with the theorems and the formulas and things and not the intuition. And most people are turned off by that. For some, some reason, I love that. And then I always love math. So when I studied electrical engineering in Colombia, I always loved the theory behind the machines, not how to repair or run or install the machines. I didn't like the la transmission line installation. Yes. I like the theory behind what the transient phenomena happen when a line fails and that kind of thing. So always in data, always in simulation and algorithms, I love that. Yes. Most of my friends went into the practical areas of electrical engineering. I went into the more theoretical aspect and I love to read um, scientific literature about that. So wow. coming to the U.S. to study that, that was like the next level of analytics. But then when I was hired into this company to do a marketing analytics position, marketing analyst, that was something that was uh, totally foreign to me. I didn't know what marketing was, what marketing meant. And when these guys hired me, I, I asked them, guys, are you sure? <laughs> because I don't know anything about marketing. I yeah. know how to run algorithms and I know how to run these things. I know how to solve equations. They said, no, no, we, we want you. We want to run experiments. We want to do segmentation. We want to do predictive models at the time, not the sophistication we have now, mm -hmm. but logistic regression has been around for a long time. Yes. And then the, this bank in San Francisco were doing aggressive offers in credit cards, and they wanted to do heavy experimentation. That was a big learning for me, and it was a very good opportunity. That's great. And what, what were the main things that you learned during that time at the, at the bank? The main thing that I learned was SQL, SQL. Yes. The language of data manipulation, right, is one of the things that have served me the most and best because you need to know how to manipulate data at a scale. And that's what SQL does. There are other tools. There have been always other things that you can do. There are modern things in Python like Pandas and other things. But nothing comes close to SQL to manipulate data at a scale. Mm -hmm. And then Big Data, Hive, and Presto, and Spark, all those things use SQL. So the same concepts that you that I used, I know, 15, 20 years ago in a small relational databases are still relevant in the area of Big Data, yes. which is very cool. That's right. That's mm -hmm. so interesting. How was it for you changing disciplines during that time, coming from electrical engineering into marketing? Okay. I felt weird, um, right? And, um, and one of the biggest shocks was to work with marketers. Marketers, by nature, they are not technical people. Learning how to communicate with them was a big experience. Because uh -huh. when you are with engineers working in the same fields, then you speak the language, right? You understand the technical jargon. And that was easy to speak in terms of algorithms, tables, mm -hmm. curves, kilowatts, things like that. But all of a sudden, you run models, you do segmentation, you apply some kind of logistic regression model for predictions, and then you cannot explain that in technical terms to your marketers. Yes. Because what they need at the end of the day is who I'm going to target mm -hmm. and why. And that this makes sense. And this cannot be a black box. And developing that intuition to be able to talk to them was very important. Yes. I think that was the, the, the biggest obstacle and hurdle and learning. Yes. Because the technical stuff, when you have the core skills, it's not a big deal. I'm not making it trivial, sound trivial, mm -hmm. but you can study, you can ask for help. If you put effort into it, you get it. But uh, communicating with business users is always tricky. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So back then, how's the team structure between the technical people and the marketing people? 
it evolved and it varied, but it's not very different from what we have now. At the beginning of uh, any marketing team or analytics team, there is usually some separation. You start with some marketers that are very good at the creative process, that are very good at management of channels. Mm -hmm. You have people that are experts in social media or other things. But at the end, we want either to run experiments, reevaluate things, acquire new users, cross-sell, prevent churn or attrition. And then what you do in the back end is you do run all these algorithms, all these uh, segmentation tools and come up with segments or cohorts to target. And then you partner with them because they are the ones that bring the creative ideas. And then it's a partnership. I cannot tell you how to prevent churn. Mm. You're a marketer, I cannot tell you, but I can tell you who is more likely to churn. Now, what do we do with those people? Do we send an email? Do we send a coupon? Do we send an offer? Do we have a better communication? That's up to you, my friend. I mm-hmm. don't know that. Yes. You are the marketer, right? Mm-hmm. But I can tell you who they are. And I can measure if what you told me to do is effective or not. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And how do you see marketing analytics today? Does it still work the same way in terms of having the, the creatives and the quants? In many ways, yes. You know, surprisingly, after all these years, yes, we have better tools. Mm-hmm. We have more powerful hardware, software, algorithms, data at our disposal. But in, in essence, we are still doing very similar things as what we did 15 years ago with marketers. Still, as a team effort, marketers, many marketers are more data-driven now, but it's not common. It's not a common denominator. And data marketing analytics, now we are more in data science, doing more machine learning, which is a lot more powerful powerful fun with what we did before. Yes. But it's not not substantially different. Interesting. Yeah. And you mentioned that um, you spent a few years early in your career in, in data warehousing. What do you see as the, the importance of data warehousing today? Sure. So data warehousing was this concept that came um, very in fashion in the 90s. Because once companies like the bank that hired me and other companies, and this is pre-Google, this is correct. This is before Google. Yeah. There were some companies starting using data as a competitive advantage. Not that data didn't exist before, but not used at the scale and to power decisions like that. When that started to prove that to be powerful and useful, targeting and, and experimentation, then all these companies started acquiring more and more data. And as the online revolution started, the collection of data obviously grew exponentially to the point that now we have the concept of big data. But big data back then, just to put things in context, I remember doing a query, a SQL query, mm-hmm. on a 10 million customer database which by today's standards is really nothing. Yeah. That query would take hours. I remember running and setting up a query on a Friday afternoon, letting it run over the weekend, Monday morning to come and get the results. <laughs> that query now would take seconds or minutes. But now I don't operate on 10 million records. I operate on hundreds of millions or perhaps billions at Facebook, for mm-hmm. instance. The concept is the same. The scale has changed. That's one thing. And then that's how the data warehousing revolution started. As you have sources, as you have the need to collect, centralize, report, and visualize that at the data warehouse. Remember that many data warehouse projects failed, failed miserably. Mm. But it was a big revolution, and the learnings were very valuable for companies. I participated in that. I did a lot of those projects. I think the biggest mistake and still made today is to think that there is one single version of the truth. That sounds very catchy and sounds very nice. Sounds very good that everybody's in sync. The problem is one version of the truth is someone's version of the truth, which might not be the true version. Yes. And then you still have the problems that the salespeople, the marketing people, the finance people, they still need to view that truth differently. 
right? That's right. It's not that they don't sync. It's because if one version is not actionable. So these warehouses became so inflexible mm-hmm. and, and, and the IT departments became like the data dictators. That's right. That many people had to start creating their own silos because, hey, I cannot use that thing. These guys don't do the dimensions and the cuts of the data that I want. They don't want me to use my definitions. And then they became fragmented. Now we are in data lakes. In part because of that, but also it's just very hard to, uh, to ingest all the information that it gets generated. Yes. Uh, when I was at Facebook, Facebook collects, I don't know now, but three, four years ago, mm-hmm. uh, we had tables, tab- just flat tables with 60 billion rows per day, every day. Wow. 60 billion, <laughs> meaning 60,000 millions of rows yes. per day. Uber is on the same scale. Millions of trips per day. You have passengers, riders, eaters, all the data points on the trips. This is, this is just huge. So you can no longer have a relational database as you had before. You can no longer have like a data warehouse with facts and dimensions. It's not possible. Just not possible. No. And do you think that the same pressures that happen with the data warehouse still apply today from the perspective of how you were saying the single, a lot of the appeal for a lot of people around the single version of the truth was so it would be easier to get agreement. That was, I guess, Mm -hmm. in a lot of people's minds, they thought if we have one truth, we will have agreement. Do you think that that's still, I guess, tantalizing for people today? Mm -hmm. It is. I mean, because if you're a CEO or if you're a, the CMO or a VP of marketing, obviously you, you ask, okay, I invest this week in Melbourne a million dollars. How many trips, Uber trips, do I get yes. of that? Yes. That should be a straightforward answer. Mm. It's not, al- not always the case. Yes. Because, okay, Mr. CMO, what do you mean? Do you mean the incremental trips that I get because of that million dollars? The total trips that I have, no matter what you do, and how that attribution changes. And then the story becomes, it's not as clear as black and white as you had before. Then obviously, from the point of view of finance, it's one number. You invest $1 million, and then I observe 1,000 trips in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Right? It's $1,000 per trip. Simple. Yes. For marketing, it's no longer the thing because we know that there are organic things that happen. Mm -hmm. Happens no matter what you do in marketing. Even if you don't do any marketing, you still get activity. How do you do that attribution? That attribution is noisy. It's not perfect. So that's when the single version of the truth doesn't apply. The most important thing is not to have that single version of the truth. It's to be able to provide the context in a very solid, good way for that person to understand what I'm saying. Okay. What I'm saying is, Mr. CMO, we got a thousand total trips and we think that 300 of those, plus or minus 50, are attributed to the million dollars we spent. Yes. That should be the truth that we need to communicate and learning how to communicate that is the key. Yes. And why uh-huh. do you think that's not happening more? It's difficult to understand when I say, because a typical good statistician would come to the CMO, Mr. CMO, we got a thousand trips, 300 of those are attributed to marketing and the, conf- the 95% confidence interval is plus or minus 50. That loses the attention and the credibility of the CMO. He immediately starts thinking, what the hell is a confidence interval? He might have learned that before. But he's not, it's not something that he does on a day-to-day basis, right? I mean, some CMOs and some more people are more technical and obviously that. And this is probably a trivial example. Mm-hmm. But a statistician will start communicating in those terms. Or he will say the p-value of that is 0.03. Mm-hmm. So learning the intuition behind it, and I'm not advocating for plain English because plain language is not meant for math and is not meant to be precise. But I say 300 trips plus or minus 50 trips, because that's my uncertainty, is a much better thing than saying a p-value of 0.05 or my confidence in the value 95% is such and such or the standard deviation. It's much more interpretable. Mm. It's still technical, yes. but more interpretable. More interpretable. Yeah. How do you think companies can come to use that language? 
uh, education. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time in education. Uh, the, the confidence interval is a simple, trivial example. When you go to machine learning, it becomes uh, more complex because in machine learning, what you have is you have predictions and then no algorithm is perfect. I'm going to predict who of the drivers of Uber in Melbourne are going to stop driving next month. Mm -hmm. No algorithm can tell me that. Yes. With 100% accuracy. Yes. I don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. But I do have a good sense. Let's say if I say of these thousand people are going to churn in Melbourne, probably 600 or 700 of those will churn, right? Yes. That's what the models give me. That's the power of the model. The power of the model is to be able to identify those high concentrations of churners within smaller sets of people so I can do more effective treatments. Developing the intuition of how to interpret the output is very good. Because I have, um, I interview data scientists a lot. Mm -hmm. Say, so how do you, you train a, a machine learning model, how do you choose which one is the best? And they start going off with all kinds of things. Oh, and the F score and the true positives and true negatives. Mm -hmm. And then that immediately gives me the idea that, yeah, the person might know the, the concepts, but has not developed the intuition behind those things. What I, the answer that I expect is, okay, if we, they know, because I provide the context that we are in marketing. The kind of intuition that I expect is, and they don't have to mention what recall is. They have to say, okay, what is important is for me to provide a, a sufficiently a small cohort of people that contains a lot of the subjects of interest for marketers to act on it. Mm -hmm. And that's how, how I would choose my predictive model. The one that gives me something that is very actionable for marketing. Yes, this other model might have a better F score. It might have a better threshold where you maximize that. You minimize true positives and, and I'm sorry, false positives and things like that. But it might not be actionable for marketing. But if you don't have that intuition, that's what you will do. You will go with the F score suggestion. You will not develop the intuition. You say, no, cutting at 79% is not what I need. I might have to cut at 70% or even 60%. Yes, I will have more false positives. But at the end of the day, this is a much more efficient vehicle for my purpose of marketing. And that's the intuition. And it's very challenging to get people yes. that can interpret things like that. Very that's challenging. Right. And where does that intuition come from? I don't know, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I, to be honest, it took me personally a while mm -hmm. to develop that. And I practice. These conferences have helped me a lot. Because uh -huh. today I'm going to talk about precisely that in front of people that I know don't have technical backgrounds. And then polishing that story has been a process. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. And so how did you do it to start developing that intuition in order to, I guess there's an element of understanding what's important for the business and for the people that you're working with in order to make the right decisions on right. what's going to help them in their outcome the best. What was your, your process to develop that? Doing things manually helps. Uh, let me give you an example. In analytics, it's very important. So I, I define analytics as the art of counting. You're counting things. Yes. You do an experiment. You are going to predict something, and then you count how many people actually happened or do that where you intended to do. And being able to reverse those calculations by hand gives you the ability to understand what's behind. I ask the question, how do you evaluate a predictive model, a machine learning model? Yeah. Most of people will go to the confusion metrics, the FS score, and will give me the technical definitions of those things. Yes. But very few people will be able to draw a quadrant and do it by hand. And with simple, it doesn't have to be complex, with simple things. Like, I ask the question, how do you define recall on a machine learning model? They will go and draw the form and write me the formula. They will not be able to tell me, of the people that you predict that are going to churn, how many you catch when you cut it at the level that you're going to cut. And that, you develop that intuition 
by actually going to the numbers, counting, reverse, validating the formulas, uh, and see, okay, what this formula, what does it really mean? What is the numerator denominator? And then you start developing that kind of intuition. That's right. Uh -huh. To understand what is the meaning yeah, of... the meaning, exactly. Yes. Meaning, because again, if you go to the standard things, then you will go to the esoteric uh, statistical terms that don't give you that intuition. Definitely. That's really good. And it's, I think it, it really highlights the way that you think. But it seems to me, because when you were talking about the work in, in the electrical engineering field, right, you were, were also saying that you were attracted to understanding things quite deeply and going to, you said, the theoretical literature. But I think what you were saying with that is that you would like to understand what happens behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. How is this put together? And yeah, and this is the same with, with right. machine learning. The same with machine learning. It's absolutely the same. I think when I, when I was very young, I was in, still in Colombia. I had the yeah. fortune to work with people that had studied and done masters uh, in prestigious universities around the world. So yeah. I was a big inspiration. I remember my boss at the time had a PhD in, I believe, was in London. A very very smart guy, and we he tasked me with uh, designing the transmission, increasing the capacity, the transmission capacity of a power line. Mm -hmm. Big problem, and yes. then there are, obviously there are different alternatives. You can build a bigger line. That's a natural thing. Mm -hmm. You can build a part of the line. I mean, two lines, and you transmit more power to that. But you can also do something very esoteric, which is you cut the line, and then you insert the capacitor. Okay. In technical terms, capacitors have negative resistance. Imagine that. Negative resistance. Wow. So you know that you, for you to transmit electricity, you have to send a current. Mm -hmm. That current is like water. The tube has resistance. The more resistance, obviously, the more friction, the less energy you can transmit because the, the water will get at the other end with less, less force. Yes. Same thing in electricity. The, the bigger the line, the, the thicker the wire, the taller, you know, the higher the altitude, the more power you can transmit. Those that's why those, those lines are so tall and so those, those wires are so big. This concept is of introducing this negative resistance is conceptually and theoretically possible, but in practice is very difficult because it introduces all kinds of dynamic effects that you didn't expect before. And the line becomes very unstable when something fails. For instance, you have a, a lightning strike, and then the line doesn't no longer behaves as a normal line. It has all this kind we are weird phenomena yeah. that can really disrupt your entire power grid. So that's what was not used before. Yes. And what we did was, okay, let's employ all this knowledge, all the power of the statistical simulation to understand what really might happen if we do this and how much money we would save. And that was, to me, that project was the connection from something completely esoteric. Negative, uh, it's not resistant, as um, I, I even forgot the name, it's, but it's, imagine that it's negative resistance yes. that introduces all these transient effects that are very, very difficult to manage and how you formulate a concrete project recommendation for a transmission line that you can explain to investors. Yeah. I'm going to do this and this is the behave and this is the measure that we have to take and we need to have these other precautions and have this protection equipment. And that was very cool. Same thing now. We developed these large machine learning exercises it produces probabilities or scores. Now, what do we do with those? And how do we transfer those from an esoteric, could be a gradient-boosted decision tree, could be um, the output of a neural network, into a targeting strategy that you, Mr. Marketer, can go to Facebook, to Yahoo, to Google search, and they say, okay, I'm going to target these people with this message because you are telling me that these people are going to cross-sell from writer to eaters. The same yes. thing. That's right. Mm -hmm. That is so interesting. And I wanted to ask you, in the, the big tech companies, it's very common or, I guess, crucial to do the experimentation. 
and you said you were doing it in the from the time of working in the bank. I think that there's still a lot of people out there that are not doing experimentation. What would you say to people that haven't started doing running experiments yet? So experimentation has become the gold standard for assessment of what works. It's not always possible, but when it's possible, it's very powerful. Nobody really knows what's going to work. Every company in the world have attrition problems. Banks have attrition problems. Telecommunication companies have it. You switch carriers, you switch banks. Uber has it. Mm. Not every driver continues driving forever. Everybody has it. If you ask marketers, what do you do about churn? They might have many, many ideas. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's do this. Let's do an incentive. Let's do a coupon. Let's do a message. Let's um, change something in the product. Nobody knows what's going to work. And many of those ideas might be very good, but for different segments. Mm. How do you determine which ideas work for what segments and which ideas don't work at all? Experimentation is the answer to that. Yes. You have a control group and you have a test group where you do the treatment and then you compare, but that's where the easy part ends. Uh -huh. Because the analysis and the interpretation is a whole another story. You start having nothing in life is as simple as just splitting it into groups, treatment and control, and reading and computing the difference. Yes. That's the trivial case as a classic textbook example. It doesn't work in reality. In reality, you have that you have the treatment group your, or your test group. You send them your treatment, meaning your coupon or your email or whatever beautiful idea you have. Not everybody in the treatment group sees it or open the email mm -hmm. or care about it. So you have non-compliance problems. Mm -hmm. And then you start going into deep rabbit holes. You say, okay, let's only isolate the people that took or open the email versus the ones that are not, then you're introducing biases. And then how do you correct for those things? And that's how data science comes to the rescue to help us to do that. And um, I've done talks in uh, A-B testing. It's tricky, but it's very important. So it's important to do it, extremely important, and also understand the basics so you can analyze it properly. That's right. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely a big, a big challenge. Yeah, and a big challenge. And I've seen people where certain cases in companies, especially in the B2B space, in the business to business, where once their customers become very large, and then a company might have few customers that are very large, and they might bring 20% of customers, bring 80% of, of the profit. These companies then get very nervous about experimenting. And do you think it's a prerequisite to have large number of customers? Yeah, in those cases, because the statistics say that you have to have some kind of power for the experiment, which is the numbers. If you have only a 20, the number is 20 customers from 30, it's very hard to do experimentation. Mm -hmm. It's extremely hard because of the low numbers, right? You have to be much more careful with those things and what you, whatever you read. Yes, it might not apply to be to be in those cases. It might not. You will have to use other things. You might have to do some more kind of top-down level attribution where you have some interventions over time. You have the response variables to that and then some attribution and be very careful about how you do that. But it's possible. We have that problem now with marketing investment for acquisition because in acquisition... What we have is we don't know yet who the targets are. Mm -hmm. We have not acquired them yet. We, don't. we know in the cities, in San Francisco, in Melbourne, in Sydney, we need drivers. And we have the channels. We have a handful of channels. And then it's very difficult to do A-B test. But we have been spending money historically. And then we observe the response variables. And then we do a top-down attribution on that. That's, I think, a, a really mm -hmm. tricky problem for a lot of people Very by looking tricky. at it. Yeah, Very from tricky. the acquisition perspective, that makes a lot of sense. And so tell me, after you, you worked at the bank, did started marketing analytics, did data warehousing, where, where did you go next? After the bank, I started working more in technology. 
there was, um, I left the bank. I got hired by a consulting company, uh, a boutique company, doing a lot of the uh, reporting, BI, and data warehousing. And then at the time, I was getting kind of tired of that space. Again, I'm not saying that it's trivial. There are data engineers that are doing great jobs, and they are still needed. But it was not something for me to do long term. Mm -hmm. So I went back to analytics. I went back to started doing e-commerce analytics, more experimentation. At some point for Google, I did uh, people analytics, which was uh, uh, an interesting application of the tools, modeling, predictive, and others for people analytics and HR. And after that, again... um, Oh, and sorry, what what type of things were you looking at in, in the people analytics side? Attrition, for instance, attrition of people, promotions. Google had a very aggressive cycle of promotions, and nobody would accept the recommendation of a formula for a promotion. But what we did with that was use that and load, kind of segment the high probability to the lowest probability of being promoted and kind of distribute that to managers and committees so they have an easier job of deciding. Because uh, what they did is you have, what do you do if you have 1,000 or 1,500 or 2,000 people up for promotion like every six months, what I, as Google was doing it. Wow. A very aggressive cycle of promotions. Then you have all these committees deciding it. You have to divide the 2,000 applications somehow. And then you have these committees with 50 applications each or more, whatever. And then the committees would complain, oh, but you guys suck because this time we got all the hard cases. We have spent two or three more days than everybody else doing that. Another committee was so happy, oh, gave me all the easy cases. <laughs> all the easy no's or all the easy yes, yes, right? So those people in the middle were the, were the problem. What we did with the model, predict who is going to be promoted. Instead of telling the committees that this guy is going to be promoted, what we did is we scored them, we shuffled well, and then we distributed high, medium, and low across all the committees. Yes. So nobody had all the easy yeses, nobody had all the easy no's, nobody had the hard cases, wow. but we didn't tell them which one is Great. which. It was Great. a creative use of those things. So we did all those things. Those things. Wow. Mm-hmm. And did any of the metrics or the analysis go back to people or to the company in terms of feedback? We, we use the decisions as confirmation for the models, yeah. but the model was never public. Yeah. The model itself was never used as a, an input for the promotion. The promotion mm-hmm. is completely driven by the committee. But the beauty of the model is each committee had the same level of effort. Yes. Nobody would have too much to do or to live. Yes. And it worked very, very smoothly. I love that. That's such a... A creative use of analytics. I find it so interesting that you seem to have a very technical mind, right? Very analytical that you like to understand things deeply and you you like to sort of pull them apart and see each piece and put it back together. And then all your, or the majority of your career seems to be around people, on the people side. (laughs) You know, marketing, people analytics, HR. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I am not that particularly good with people because I'm still a data nerd and I still like to sit in my desk and do the programs and the algorithms. And and I spend most of my time, I do really spend on the technical side, but I know that it's very important to be able to talk to these people because at the end they are my stakeholders. Like the marketers, they are not... None of them is my boss, but they are my clients Mm -hmm. or they are my partners and I need to work with them. So working with them and, and at the end, that's how it should be because they don't hire me to do the best possible machine learning algorithm. They hire me to be able to 
empower the marketers to do what they need to do best. Yes. If I can do that with a less sophisticated algorithm, sure, that works. Something that they understand, that's what is needed. I am not a researcher. I'm not creating the best one. I would love to, at some point, do those kind of things, but that's not my job. My job is to be a power user of these algorithms, understand them very well, obviously much more than the marketers, but be able to provide the intuition to them so they can, I can empower them to do their, their job. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. So being empowering them. So do you see the majority of your work as enabling or as translating for the marketers? What, what do you see? Part of that is enabling, translating, but it's also a two-way relationship because these people, they might treat you as a line, as a, as a shift. No, there is a name for it. They, they might treat you as a data provider if you let them, meaning that they will come to you, give me these numbers, give mm -hmm. me this query, give me this table. Tell me my cohort. Yeah. But that's not a productive relationship. Correct. A productive relationship is when you also come with ideas and it's a dialogue. Yes. And it's also when the marketers sit and they have the intuition and they can sit with you to create them all and they can also suggest features mm -hmm. and feature engineering and the business sense. Because if you if it's a strict division, then I'm here coding the algorithm, coming up with the things myself, it's a black box to the marketer. The marketing only comes from the data. It's not a productive relationship. It's not. You are a line item. It's like a chef. You get asked for, give me my stuff. And then nobody wants to do that because it's not productive. That's right. And how do you move that relationship to a point that is more to You have to show that you are interested. You have to show that you know the business. Mm -hmm. And it's a struggle for the best data scientists to spend some time understanding what the business is and needs. And again, I interview... Uh, Literally, we get literally hundreds of resumes loaded with all the buzzwords. They know all the technologies that you care. I mean, loaded with things. Yes. I don't care about much of those things. I care about, obviously, they have to have solid skills. Mm. There's no question around about it. But they also have to have the potential to have the develop this intuition and work with people. Yes. And they have to, the interest of doing that. At the same time, the marketer needs to appreciate that we are no longer just data providers. We are no longer the person that you would come as we were a machine that you query and produce the output and then you go and run with it. There are consequences. You, we need to guide you into interpretation of those things. And at the same time, we are doing optimization now. I'm running the optimizer. Mm -hmm. But you, Mr. Channel Manager, you know how, I don't know, you have Craigslist in... Uh, we have Gumtree, which is Gumtree, the version. Yes. Things like that. You know that intuitively, you know that if you spend a lot of money on that, you will saturate that channel very quickly. It might be very effective. Yes. But then if you spend a lot of money on that, what you will end up is Uber, 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 right? <laughs> that's right. In the same page, you will have Uber 10 times, and that's no longer effective. You're saturating the, uh, the channel, bad customer experience, but everything. My model is telling me that the channel is very effective, mm. so I'm telling you to spend more money on that. But you say, no, 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 no. Come on, you have to put a constraint on that. I cannot spend more than this. Yes. So that's the, that's the technical dialogue we're having. Yes. I don't know that. The model doesn't know that. That's right. That's great. So showing an interest and, and having that two-way dialogue where you're yes. both learning from each other. From each other. But I, I need to know where the, my recommendation is going to be used and how. And the marketer needs to have some intuition about what I'm doing. It cannot be a black box. And then it's a dialogue. Excellent. Excellent. I love it. <laughs> and um, uh, you mentioned a little bit about the hiring process and that you get a lot of CVs that are overloaded with the buzzwords. How do you start to look for, for people that have this capacity to understand business a bit more? It's very tricky. Mm. Very, very tricky. As I mentioned, we get hundreds of resumes. One of the, uh, the things that a key takeaway, you have to be focused to the job that you apply. If you give me a, a resume, Felipe, and then you listed all possible software technologies, all possible software tools, I think 
two things. You might be a, a genius, and you might be. Yeah. I have no basis to say that you are not. Mm -hmm. But I don't need you because I don't need a person that can know all these things. I have a business need, and I might not be able to afford you. Mm -hmm. And even if you are a genius, and then I would be concerned about your communication skills and your interrelationships. Or I say, oh, you're just bluffing. You're just bluffing, and you are not targeted. You didn't do your homework. Mm. You should have known that what I'm looking for is these three or four things if you read the raw description. So you might be sending the same resume to a thousand different companies, to a thousand different jobs. You are not focused mm. and you don't know what you're, you're saying. And sadly, in many cases, I get that and I highlight a few things that I care. I ask very basic questions. I say, you know what? I really don't know that that much. Then why do you list it? Why do you put it on your resume? That gets you to the pre-screening process, but mm. it doesn't get you past that. Correct. It's rather to be rejected for most roles, but to the ones that you pass, be really be a good fit and really know what it is. And it takes time. Uh, applying for jobs is not easy. You have to understand what the company needs and take time to do that. Or if you show up to an interview and you have not done your homework of knowing what your interviewers are, that also shows that you are not doing your homework. Mm -hmm. It's very, very, very challenging. What I do look for people... So obviously, you have to have the technical skills. But if I have two people, one with 7 out of 10 or 8 out of 10, and the other one with 9.5 out of 10, there is no much difference if the other person communicates better and has the potential and the passion to learn. Give me an example. I just hired, we just hired recently a young woman in our group. If we put her resume next to another 100 resumes that we've seen, she would be the last. But she, her resume was, because it's simpler, she doesn't list more than five or six things or skills, but it was very focused on the things that we care. She didn't list Java, CSS, HTML, all the algorithms, machine learning, all those things. She didn't list any of those things, but she listed SQL, she listed Python, she listed some good projects in um, media mix modeling, and a few other things that caught my attention, and a fairly simpler resume. Not the greatest school either. Good university, but not Harvard, MIT, Stanford, any of those. So I decided to give her a chance mm -hmm. because I was tired of the other resumes loaded with all kinds of buzzwords just to learn that they don't know much about those things. Yes. I called her and I started asking questions and I started soft and start going harder and harder on the questions and she was technically good. So she had the skills. Also had the intuition because I started asking, okay, I understand that you don't know anything about uh, machine learning or, or optimization. But I'm a marketer and you, I'm working with you. I say, I don't understand what optimization is. Why don't you tell me what it is? Yeah. And she provided a very simple, good, clear, concise explanation. So I advanced her to on-site interview and I had to write in the, um, on the feedback exactly that she has a lot of potential. She doesn't have all the super technical skills that we are used to, but she is very smart and has the passion to do it. She did very well in the interview. But well, actually, it's a panel. So we have a panel. Business people interview, technical people interview, analytics people interview, and software engineers interview as well. Wow. She did well with the business people, the marketers. She did well with the analytics, and she did very bad with the software engineers. Mm -hmm. But I knew that, and it was a mistake for us. And I told my boss, it's a mistake for us to have her interviewing with software engineers. She is not a developer. Mm -hmm. She doesn't understand how these big platforms work, and we don't need that. Yes. So it's going to be a battle because if you have some... Two thumbs down. It's hard to, usually you have two thumbs up, one thumb up, and neutral, and you hire a person. It was two thumbs down, but we, I talked to them, 
understood exactly why they gave her two thumbs down. They were not lying. I mean, it's true. Yeah. They, she doesn't know all those things. But then the argument we made is we don't need her for that. Mm -hmm. She has the other skills, a much more coherent storytelling, business intuition, all that. And we had her. And she's doing very well. And again, if you look at her resume, she would be like the last one of 100 resumes that I can show you. Yes. Technical thing. But she's doing very well. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. You knew what was good in her, mm -hmm. the value that she could bring right. and, and how to, right. I guess, position that to people through the, the interview process. Because right, right, right. it's not always... Not always the case. And it's a much better thing for us and for her and for the company because, yeah. again, if I had hired one of those big name schools and resumes and things, we'll be having a hard time adapting that person to the role. Yes. That's so mm -hmm. interesting. That's great. That's really great. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your time at Facebook. What was the, the type of work that you're doing there? Very similar. In marketing analytics, we did a lot of experimentation, a lot of analysis, cohort analysis, attribution at unprecedented scales for me at the time. Mm -hmm. Before Facebook, I had done things at Google and other companies, but at Facebook, the scale is just unprecedented and the sophistication of the tools. Other than the basic um, experimentation, we did sophisticated things like network partitions okay. for experiments. You have, sometimes you have deeply connected networks. It's very hard to split two groups into test and control because the test might be help, might be friends with the controller. If you get some kind of ads, some kind of offers, some kind of thing, you might tell your friends in the control, so you destroy the experiment. Yes. So we did that. We pioneered the network experimentation. And then we also developed um, predictive models. There is one technique that was a breakthrough like 2014 and 15. So Facebook had been doing since 2013, but it became public like in 1415, which is called embeddings. In machine learning, you have to have a lot of data, that good relevant data for the outcome that you are trying to predict. Many of the data in many cases is not numerical, it's categorical. If you perform this thing on a weekend or a holiday, what time of the year? There are several examples of categorical variables. What type of device you use? You cannot say that an Apple is a one and an Android is a two because then the one and the two don't have meaning. The number doesn't have a meaning because those are categorical values, right? But it has importance, mm -hmm. for, especially for certain things. Android people behave differently than iPhone people, or where country do you live, or what language do you speak, or the language that you have your profile at, things like that. So how do you make those things into numerical values yes. such that a machine learning or a neural network can understand? And then the most common techniques is one-hot encoding. You know what one-hot is? Yes, but I'll, ones, I'll ones or zeros. And let's, let's take the... Uh, case of Android and iPhone, you have, instead of having Android and iPhone in one column, you have two columns, one or zero. So if it's an Apple, it's a one. If it's an Android, it's a zero. So you have two combinations. The problem is when you have thousands or millions of values in the categorical value, mm. then your one hot encoding becomes very long. Imagine that at Facebook, Facebook has six million or seven million pages. I don't even remember how many yeah. business pages. A very strong predictor of your interest and um, for ads and for many other things is the pages that you engage with. But you only engage with, I don't know, 50, 100, perhaps 200 pages. Mm -hmm. An extreme case can be a thousand pages that yes. you engage a very active user, but you have six million pages. How do you one hot encode <laughs> that? You will have a six million vector with only 100 ones exactly. and everything will be zero. Be not only extremely inefficient, but it will be very, very hard to manipulate and not, doesn't predict much. So what they do is they say, okay, let's represent, this is an extreme case, but it's, it's a technique that is well known. Let's represent these six million pages as a one 128 dimensional vector. 
dimensions like x, y, and z. Yes. But instead of three, you have 128. So you, you can no longer visualize it. And then you say, the interests of Felipe in the pages are going to be represented by this vector. And that vector gets trained as part of a neural network. And then what the vector contains is just numbers that don't mean anything mm -hmm. by themselves. 0 0.08, 0 0.0001, point whatever. If you look at the vectors, don't mean anything. But what it means is, if you take a look of people that like um, safaris in Melbourne, the pages related to the business of safaris in Melbourne, and then you say people like that, and then you will find that when they take the difference of those vectors to the difference of what other vectors are close to them, then you might see people also interested in jeeps, four by four type of things, right? Yeah. Or if you have people that like football, international football, oh, they also like uh, training equipment. Things like that. So those are trivial cases that, you know, as a marketer, you can think of. But at the scale, how do you do that at the scale? That's how you do it with these embeddings. You take the seed vectors and then you see what vectors are close to that. And it's very, very powerful. So we developed embeddings for marketing. And not, not on the business pages engagement, yeah. but on the things that were relevant to the things that we are trying to do. We're trying to promote post search. Mm -hmm. And then what things are relevant and predictive of use of post search. And then we created those, those things. It was very cool. Very cool. Very and what was the process to do that? The process was, at first, it was just inspirational or inspired by this other thing that they were doing. When I first saw the embedding vectors of the business pages, I didn't understand what that was. Yeah. I said, this is so weird. Yeah. I mean, I have this because at Facebook, things were very open. You have access to the tables, I attended the tech talks, and I knew these people were doing that. I said, this is so weird. These numbers, what do they mean? The numbers don't have any human meaning yes. at all. And then I start asking and reading and getting a, an intuition behind it. And then I remember electrical engineering, again, mm -hmm. polar coordinates. I don't know if you know those things. Yes. Imagine you have this vector and this other vector, and then what is the angle between those things? And then how you measure closeness. Oh, so the vector of people that like football is closer to the vector that people that like cycling much rather than the people that like, I don't know, classical music. Yes. That vector will be much farther away. Oh, I get it. Now, right? That's how, then again, it's relating those things to simple examples first. Then the second, the second thing is ask more questions. Okay, how does these things get calculated? Yes. At first, I took it as value. Okay, yes. you know what? I am not going to worry about that thing. It's too much information now. Let's use it as is and let's assume that is right. Yes. And I start using those things for marketing with some modest results. Mm -hmm. Because even though the embeddings are very powerful, they were not relevant to the problem that we are trying to solve in marketing. Mm. because those are business page interests. So we're not predictive of the things in marketing, but they were already pre-computed. So yes. the, the effort to try it and rapid iteration, rapid prototyping is another key thing that, mm. that I do. It's very important. Rapid experimentation, okay, let's try it. It's not going to cost me a week or a month of effort. It's going to cost me, you know, two days and I learn some things. Yes. And if it doesn't work, well, it doesn't work. That's right. And then we, that's how then, okay, maybe if we do something that's more relevant to marketing, it will work. And that, yeah, it worked. It worked very well. How do you choose whether to continue pursuing a line or change to something different when you're trying to work through a problem like that? I think it's a lot of uh, trial and error, but also some experience and intuition. So I knew that in this case, for instance, I knew that it had a lot of power. Yeah. Because I say, if the, ad in, if the Facebook ad indexer uses that and look how effective it is, it has to work for us. But I was not sure. And I was not in a position to support that, to tell the director of the marketing group, hey, I'm going to spend some serious time doing this, or I need help on this, because there were other business needs. So it's that 
you always have those trade-offs. But you always have to take risks, small risks. And then uh, even though I could not support it, I started, I continued the conversation with these guys. Mm-hmm. Those guys were uh, geniuses, you know, PhDs and stats creating all these things. They didn't know what I was going to use those things for. But I made a point of explaining them, hey guys, I think this might work for my problem in marketing. And I had some earlier experience with them in the, in the network experimentation yeah. where the network partition was done for data center load balancing, face recognition, and many other things, not for marketing. Mm-hmm. And then I say, hey, guys, this might work for us. And I explain them the problem and say, yeah, that might work. And they helped me. And they were very excited. They were very excited about knowing that they had yet another use case. Yes. And I was a champion for them in the marketing group. And they were happy for so we developed a good relationship. I took the risk of, of going and talking talk to them and say, hey, you know what? If it doesn't work, yeah, I lost you know, a day or two days or whatever, but I learned something and it doesn't work, doesn't work. That is excellent. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of organizations that have that faced that, that problem where they, that you solved as part of this, where the knowledge might be in one part of the organization and it can be used in other parts and, and you'll get a lot of value from that. What do you think makes that possible in companies like Facebook or Uber? It's hard for me to talk in generalities. Mm-hmm. And there are obviously that's the role of the executives to make sure that you have cross-pollination. We have at Uber and also at Facebook, we have tech talks where we invite our lunches, technical lunches, where the group attends a presentation from other group of unrelated or little related things. We, for instance, at Uber, we invite people from the marketplace, from the product team that are doing machine learning or artificial intelligence or data groups. But nobody really makes me attend those things. Mm-hmm. Or we don't make, or it's not mandatory for the team to attend those things. Yeah. The analyst or the data scientist needs to show some curiosity. Some interest. Because no matter what, at the end of the day, you are not, it's not something that you get paid to do, it's, but it's something that might benefit you a lot. But it's not immediate and it's not always straightforward. So it's a risk that we have to take. So I advise people to do those things. I try to attend as many of the things as I can. Obviously, it's not always possible, busy projects, deadlines, but I try to. The, the data science team at Uber is very sophisticated. They have tech talks, sometimes for things that are not very relevant. The other day, they were talking about generative and adversarial networks. Very cool. I don't see a use for that now. The same way, the first time I heard about network partition, I didn't see a need for it in marketing. But we might have a problem with it. You know what? I heard of something in the product team. That sounds like something that we could use. I give it some more thought. Then I ask those people, hey, what do you think about this? And you know what? Don't bother. It doesn't work. Let's think about it more. Whatever it is. The risk that you take. Yes. Mm -hmm. And do you think that people in those organizations, they feel like they can afford the time to work with other areas? You have to make room for it because otherwise you'd be absorbed by the day-to-day That's things right. and you've never been able to put your water, your head above the water. Yes. That goes with the passion, the potential, the curiosity. We don't hire people just to do the description of the job. You have to have ambition to do more. It's better to me, it's much more valuable a person that has the ambition, obviously the technical skills. You mentioned in the question that you had before, the imposter syndrome, which now uh, is obviously you might have a lot of imposters, but the most important thing is people that have the passion to be able to do those things. In many cases, the imposter syndrome, I think is beneficial, provided that you have the potential, the passion and the intention to act on it. Otherwise, you're just bluffing and then you are just for a short gain that doesn't uh, bring you any long-term benefits. That's right. Um, but uh, being, being able to be an imposter a little bit, is, is, I think, is helpful. Yes. Uh. 
That makes sense. How long have you been at Uber now? For over a year and a half. And in what ways is it different to what you expected? Silicon Valley companies in general are fairly similar. Uh Pretty much my experience is exclusively in Silicon Valley. Mm. I grew up in Colombia. As I mentioned, I had a job in Colombia that was very short compared to the rest of my professional life. Silicon Valley companies are different, but I talk to people in other countries and in other companies. It's similar in the sense that, especially in the tech, the big tech companies, a lot of the people have rotated. So when I went to Uber, many of the tools, the databases, the dashboarding, the, even the machine learning are very similar. If you just change the color, the UI, and the name, it's almost the same as the ones at, at Facebook. The reservation tools for the conference rooms and all that is the same. But there are also key differences in the culture. Obviously, the business is different. They specialize in different things. And they all have these pros and cons, different yes. ethics work ethics, different issues, problems, but also very similar. Yeah, that's nice. In in what ways was it different to what you thought? Um, was different in the sense that um, when I joined Uber, they were in the middle of all these PR scandals. Yes. Last year. It was mm-hmm. a very bad year for Uber in terms of reputation, in terms of perception, but they were able to ex- continue executing very well and innovating very well to the point that Lyft, for instance, which is yes. our main competitor in the US and other companies, and other, and other companies the DD and other around the world, they were not able to catch up despite the PR negative things. Wow. Despite the delete Uber, despite all that things. Because at the end of the day, consumers expect a great service. Mm. And then you ask for the ride that is faster, lower price, and that shows up first. Yes, the CEO is involved in some kind of sexual harassment thing. That's bad. But consumers, at the end of the day, it's not selfishness. It's just it's common sense. And yes, nobody celebrates sexual harassments or things like that. And when I joined the company, I knew that that was bad, but I was isolated. I was very transparent with the hiring manager, the director of analytics. Hey, you guys are in the middle of big scandals and you expect me to join. What, what is it for me? And then they say, well, with this marketing group in general and the analytics group is completely brand new, completely Completely foreign to those things. We are not going to tolerate any of those in here. And the company at the top is also making changes. That was a very good answer. Mm-hmm. And that's indeed what the company did. It's not that we are out of the woods. There are still some issues. But the CEO is doing very well. Very well. And I think we are solving those things. Many of the people that were involved on those things were fired or left. Mm-hmm. And just continue working and innovating. And the opportunity for me was very good at Facebook. Facebook is a great company. I love the work there, especially in the marketing group. Uh-huh. But at Uber, I had the opportunity to do larger things, have more impact. As the companies grow, and as you have more talented and brilliant people, the slice of the pie that you get to do is smaller. Yes. And that's what I was doing at Facebook, was smaller and smaller, because we had hired brilliant people, and I have done all, all those things. So it was not a lot of challenges for me, and Uber was a big one. What, uh, and what are some of the challenges that you're facing in, in Uber? Currently, we are working on optimization. So mm-hmm. I moved from marketing analytics to optimization of marketing spend, which is another area of analytics as well. You, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars per year mm-hmm. in marketing channels around the world. Yes. How do we best optimize and allocate that money? It's a big problem. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a problem that um, is a multidisciplinary cross-functional thing because I have some data science 
scientists working with me that they can estimate and calculate the channel efficiencies. I am responsible for the allocation of the money, but the money comes from finance. Some of the practical things come from the marketers and the planners themselves. Hey, uh, Craigslist example is very efficient, but you cannot spend more than this. It's not because it's not possible. Or we pre-committed these things to TV yeah. and you cannot change those things. So those are practical constraints that the models and the data science doesn't know. Yes. So it's working with all those stakeholders. And some of the data obviously come from our big databases, queries and things. Others come from agencies. Others come from someone typing things on the spreadsheet. Those are challenge, technical challenges as mm-hmm. well and organizational. So that's what we are work, currently working, trying to automate. So we can do it at the scale around the world. Right at the scale of at the scale like of, Uber. The, of Uber. Yes. Interesting. That would be so exciting to be setting up a function at that scale. What are the challenges that you see coming up? Well, yes. Uh, challenges, uh, different regions around the world will have different dynamics. Mm-hmm. And we need to adapt to those dynamics. We need to be able to automate, making sure that the data is ingested in standard ways. The people in Mexico, the people in Brazil, the people in Amsterdam, they work with their agencies. They work with their partners. They get data in certain ways. They define things certain ways. You cannot automate those things easily if everybody is different. At the same time, we cannot come to a Mexico people and say, hey, no, this is how we do it in the U.S. You have to do it that way. Correct. It cannot be like that. No. We have to make sure that they understand, okay, guys, we want to deploy this engine. We want to deploy it at a scale for the world. This is the benefits for U.S. You no longer have a process that is going to take you three weeks for an output that is mediocre. This is going to take you one day or less. It's going to be robust. You can do it many times because it's automated, but you have to do this sort of thing. So we have to compromise. Those are the challenges. Yes. What is your team composition? What type of skills do you have in the team? And are you getting people from inside Uber or outside? The analytics team, we have several people doing the different, what we call city models Mm -hmm. for driver, rider, and eater. Those are data scientists, typically more junior data scientists, and they work very closely with planners to get the inputs uh, for those things. That I use that input and I work with um, software developers. They belong to a different org, but we have a cross-functional team uh-huh. where we are trying to automate that. So we automate the ingestion of that data, automate the, uh, the, engine, the optimization engine itself, and I'm responsible for the logic of the optimization. And I coded. I coded the prototype. It worked, and I'm coding now the actual deployment, but there are many things that I don't know. I am not a software developer, so I don't know how things fit into a very large platform where you have to call the programs from a special flows and the files need to live in a special places. And so the, the software engineers do that for me. Yes, of course. And they don't understand the logic of the optimization. That's right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And how are the cross-functional teams put together? Typically, there is a product manager, which is kind of, is not our boss, because nobody reports to the person. He doesn't have direct authority over that, but he has responsibility for the development or the delivery of the product. So in a way, it's kind of the boss, but it's more like a facilitator. Yeah. That's how I see the product. We're working with a, a great guy now, which is the product manager. He's a younger guy, and he's a facilitator. He, for instance, tells me this past week, hey, Mario, we have a deadline before you go to Australia. So I'm going to protect you from anybody else requesting anything so you can focus on that thing. So he's not mandating me to do that. He's helping me to do that. Correct. And he even told my boss, please don't ask anything of Mario because of it. So he's shielding, he's protecting me. He's saying, <laughs> I love it, man. Go and do that because that would be, I have to spend energy to do that, that I can better spend in thinking about my problems. So he really cleared my place. So now I have my mind clear. I sat the entire week with the software engineer to do that. 
And then that's what, and if I have a problem, hey, dude, something is not working. We don't understand or this platform is failing or whatever. He will go and find out who can help us, connect us, open that door and help us to do that. So he's responsible for the, for the group. And he's kind of the boss, but he's really, really the facilitator. And that's how it should work. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And how long have you been working in that type of environment or setup? It's common. It's, this project has been like, uh, we've been working with this project for three or four months. I had not that word, but at, or at Symantec, we had a similar situation. Symantec is the maker of the Norton antivirus and all the other things. I had very bad experiences with product and project managers. Yes. Project managers that behave like accountants. Mm. Mario, tell me what is the status of the project today? Did you accomplish A, B, and C? And why not? Correct. And I need to reply that. I gave first, you are not my boss. Second, that you are not collaborating with me. Third, I feel like you are another layer of bureaucracy that I need to deal with instead of facilitating. That's right. And then I worked with this other product manager. She was great. She was the opposite. She was, again, a facilitator. Yes. I'll come to her. She, her name was Anna Avelovitz. Love her. Great. And say, hey, we have to work with this project. There are all these data that we need. I have no idea who manages those databases, what those databases are. Nothing. She doesn't know how to query databases. She doesn't know the technical stuff. But she went ahead, made phone calls, visited people, traveled to different cities uh, until she found out who was responsible, got me the authorization to access the databases and brought those things to me. Amazing. I can take it from there. They, she doesn't have to do anything else. She doesn't have to know how to query those things. Yes. I can do it. But she opened those doors. She found out those things for me. And then, hey, is there anything else we can do? How are we moving along? Is there any blocks? And now it's a much easier collaboration, much better and productive collaboration. I didn't feel like she was another layer of bureaucracy, but I had to fill a status report, task, times. Like, come on. I'm not uh, clocking the time here. That's right. Right. That is so interesting. Because at the moment, there's a lot of companies in Australia that are making the change, going Mm -hmm. from the bureaucratic project manager type that you mentioned to the facilitator that empowers and removes roadblocks to make the team more effective. And yeah, it definitely makes everyone much happier, much much more productive. That's outstanding. (laughs) Um, So... I know we only have a few minutes left, uh, so I wanted to change tact a little bit and ask you some more high-level questions. Uh, The first one, which I know that we touched some of the aspects, I wanted to ask you, what do you think makes a great data scientist? A combination of many of the things that we talked today, right? A person with, I think, passion, purpose, and potential is what's more important. I would even say that the technical skills are very, very important, obviously, but if you show the potential to learn those things, you are great. Yes. It's the ability to understand that you are there, not for the purity of the algorithm, but how you are going to empower the use of that, right? And then you have to show some interest for that. In my career, I worked for very few companies where I was not interested in the end product that they, they, they did. I love Facebook. I love uh, Uber. I like what they are doing. So it's very important because it gives me an incentive. I love marketing. So when I am doing these things, even if it's hard, even if we are coding until late in the evening, whatever, I know that it's something that I care. There are other industries that I don't have much interest, not, nothing particularly against them, but I don't like them. For instance, if with healthcare or something else, I say, you know what, I, I just think that I don't feel like connected. Yes. Many other people do. Correct. And it's okay. It's great. But it will not be. So passion is, is very key, very important. Um, Curiosity. Yes. And what do you love about marketing? What I love is uh, the um, 
the variety, the dynamism, the things. So uh, again, I spend most of my time marketing analytics, doing yes. quantitative stuff, but it's also good to know and go and meet with them and see how the campaigns work and perform and how the creative side works, the results of the experiments, the metrics, the trips, the investment. That's fun. It's just fun. Amazing. What do you think makes a great data science leader? That's a good question. So I think a leader in data science obviously needs to understand some of the technical aspects of it. And it's a leader that doesn't understand the basics obviously loses credibility. But a leader is not a person that I will come if I had a technical problem. Hey, leader, help me solve this algorithm because it's not converging. That's not the person that I will go to. But a leader will be a person that will inspire me that will inspire uh, the team, that will give the team cover when we are facing difficulties. Good coach, right? I think inspiration and vision is important because we are, we are working on these things and then a leader might be aware of other mega trends that are happening. And I say, you know what? We, next quarter or next semester, we are going to change how we do business. We no longer are going to do certain things at others. So you guys need to start preparing for that. Because we don't know those things. We are busy working and trying to deliver for next quarter. As the vision, cover, the career paths that, that can help us. I think that's a good leader would do. Mostly inspirational. Yes. Make sure that the team is happy and running well and yeah. the path is defined. That's great. What do you see as some of the, the current challenges in data science? Hiding, as I mentioned before, hiding is yes. a big challenge. It's difficult. Difficult to assess good potential. I don't have a lack of resumes. That's not a problem. A lack of candidates. I have hundreds. Just very difficult. The, all the buzzwords, all these loaded resumes, people that not, are not showing focus and that they have done homeworks. If I see a resume that is very generic, that is probably being sent to a thousand other companies, it's just very hard. That's right. Hiding is diffi very difficult. It's one of the most difficult things that we are facing now. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And what do you think are the, the future challenges in data science? Future challenges, we are going to deal with a lot of pressure, regulatory pressure, public pressure, as um, people are more and more aware of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to not substantially different what we had before. We always had public outcry about new technologies. This whole thing about the privacy thing is going to be a problem soon. The European laws, for instance, which I personally think are terrible. Terrible for the consumer and terrible for the small companies, for the small startups. Really? Why, why is that? They are counterproductive. They are badly written. Companies are having a hard time complying with that to the point that when companies send the email telling you that they had to comply with the GDPR, they were violating the GDPR. Really? Yes. Contradictory regulations. Yes. So imagine that who can comply with those things? Only yes. the big guys. Yes. Only but Facebook, Uber, yeah. and Google, and Amazon, and all those guys. The smaller companies, the smaller startups cannot comply with those things. Those rules are not protecting anyone, hurting consumers and hurting small businesses and getting the titans a big, massive walls of entry because nobody can. Facebook can sure. pay lawyers to do that. It's not a 10 more lawyers, 20, 50 lawyers. They don't care. Yeah. Google pays a fine of 300 million euros, 500 million euros. They don't care. Yeah. Charge 100,000 to a smaller startup. You will break them. Mm. So you are we're losing in innovation, losing in small businesses. Uh, European consumers can no longer access valuable information from the United States because many people didn't say, you know what, we cannot comply with this True. law. Sorry, guys, 
we're going to show you anything. They're losing value. They're losing things. They're not protecting anyone. Unfortunately, that's like a trend that is going to happen in many other countries. Unfortunately, so we'll have to deal with that. We'll have to deal with the scrutiny in marketing. Okay, now you guys are predicting who is going to churn. Drivers are going to churn. How are you going to do that? How are you going? Are you discriminating? Are you? I mean, many things that I see that are going to be challenges. Yeah. Also, education in general. In these conferences, I try to speak outspokenly about things against like the GDPR, but also scandals in the U.S. There was um, the election of Donald Trump. For whatever reason, might like it or might not like it, there were conspiracy theories about how the Russians manipulated Facebook to do that. Yes. That's a widely exaggerated claim. That is a completely, I don't say, it's exaggerated. It's not possible. And that's why people, if people don't understand what artificial intelligence is capable of, yes. it's very easy to see that. And then if you see examples, oh, that, you know, that's how he got elected because he's a terrible president. I hate him, but he got elected is because of Facebook. You have to really understand mm. the dynamics and true capabilities. And then we as practitioners, our responsibility to educate people about the true capabilities and the things that it's capable of. Yeah, obviously, there are impressive advances in artificial intelligence. And sure, you might be able to persuade people to do that. I mean, after all, that's what ads do. Ads persuades you to buy things. But it, there, is, there are limits to that. Limits. And you have to understand to what point it works and what doesn't. That's true. And so do you think that more people in the, in the data science community should be educating? Yes, because the danger is that if we don't, then the people don't understand it, then politicians that understand even less, that are even more ignorant. We have the Senate of the U.S. You have these people that are 60, 70, even 80 years old, completely disconnected from the social media, <laughs> from artificial intelligence. When Mark Zuckerberg was asked to testify in front of Congress, he was asked like the most basic things. It was like he was talking to his grandmother, <laughs> explaining how basic things of the internet work. Say, okay, but these guys have power. These guys can regulate us, can regulate these industries, and they don't understand it. And then when something like that happens, you have the public say, with these wild claims that Donald Trump was, ex was elected because of the Russians, because of artificial intelligence. And then this politician, I am going to regulate artificial intelligence. Yeah. That's a real, real danger. Real, real danger. Because it will disrupt the industry, it will stop innovation, it will kill jobs, it will kill small startups. The big guys can afford those things. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. They have money. Correct. The more regulations, the better for them. They get just more protection. They have less entrance into the market. The, the, the threat of disruption is even less. That's right. But then the innovation... But the small guys lose. If you have a brilliant idea, you cannot afford to have GDPR compliance. You can't. There's no way. That's true. So yes, we do need to start educating more. So hopefully more Australia doesn't go that direction. Hopefully the US doesn't. Hopefully Latin America doesn't. Yes. And hopefully at some point the Europeans will realize how bad it is and they will reverse it. That would I mean, there, there are cases there are, um, in Spain. Google was forced. Uh, Newspapers were suing Google to share revenue with them because they said that Google searchers extracted the information from their articles and not paying for the content. A court declared that they had to pay. Say, you know what? Forget it. We are pulling out of the country. They pull out of the country. Traffic to those, to those newspapers plummeted. They have to complain again to the government. Hey, Please remove that law and buy Google back. So you might see those things. That would be great. That would be really great. Yeah. And one more question for you. A takeaway for the listeners. What would you like to leave people pondering or something, a piece of advice in their mind? I assume that your audience is mostly technical people, data scientists, aspired data scientists. If you are thinking of applying of these companies, be focused. Mm -hmm. Do your homework and read. Be really mindful of what they are looking for as you have better chances of doing that and prepare. If you get invited to a phone interview, some homework, 
or who is the, they, they, they tell you who is the interviewer. Mm -hmm. Look it up in, in LinkedIn. Yeah. It doesn't take more than five, 10 minutes to yeah. do that. Just do your homework. Don't do us uh, blanket uh, generic things. Be passionate about what you're going to do. Have a purpose and do that with passion because at the end, you spend a lot of hours doing this. So you have to have passion, you have to enjoy it, you have to have fun. It's not just the money, it's, uh, the, the reputation. It's also have fun, be curious, and then also share back with people. That's good. Educate people. You don't have to be a heavy partisan or advocate against, you know, political parties or things, but just realistic. I, that's what I try to people to be realistic. AI might be dangerous. Sure, it might be. Nobody's saying that it's not. It's powerful. Sure. But let's keep things in context and perspective and make sure that it doesn't get exaggerated because it might get killed. Yes. Amazing. Mario, thank you so much. Lipe, thanks, thanks for the invitation. So much fun. Maybe we'll so do something uh, when I'm back from the U.S. and connect. And uh, let me know when you publish this. I would like to have links. Definitely. Thank you so much okay, for your man. time. Sure, sure. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.